One of the hardest questions that I get in pastoral ministry is, where was God when, and you can fill in the blank, right? uh, where was God when our baby died? Uh, where was God when I was raped? Uh, where was God when I was fired unjustly and couldn't get a job for three years? Where was God in those three years? Now, many of us have questions like that about some part of our lives. And if you're looking back, either tempted to ask that question or truly asking that question, what was happening? Did God take the day off? Did God take a few years off? How did my life take that turn? Uh, I want you to know that today's text, I think, is designed uh, to, to go right to that wound in your heart, which I know is great. Uh, and, uh, and to touch it, to heal it. Uh, because what we're going to see here is uh, the main character of our story right now, a man named Joseph, uh, is, is about to suffer terribly. It's a day that we've known is coming, and it comes today. And the story is told in a way that we finish it, and we look back, and we're left with kind of two big aches in our heart. One, just, oh, that was terrible. Why did that happen? And then the other... You look at it and you think for a minute, you say, wait a minute, where was God? God is never mentioned in the whole story. It's almost as if he, he isn't there, as if he had taken a day off. And so the same questions some of us are asking about moments in our lives, here we have a text designed to make us ask the same question. It will be many chapters before that answer is given, but we're going to look at that question, we're going to look at the answer, and we're going to look at how later books in the New Testament speak to this, to bring great healing to many of us who wonder where God was in our worst moments. If you're just joining us, we're walking through the story of Joseph and his brothers. This is the last major section of the book of Genesis, in which God makes Joseph like Jesus in many ways that he may also be making you like Jesus. I'll give you the backstory here. There are two big questions that readers are watching for. If you had just read Genesis straight through, uh, you'd be thinking about these two things that'd be on your mind. The first is the really kind of obvious question everyone in the story is asking, which is there are 12 brothers and they are all in a family. It's a very wealthy family, the kind of family whose, uh, whose estate you want to inherit and be in charge of. They are fighting over who is going to get to inherit the estate. Who is going to get all of dad's stuff and rule this family when he is gone? And dad gets to pick. And so they're all vying for who's going to be the one that dad picks. These 12 brothers all want to be in charge one day. And everything that they're doing is just maneuvering to try to figure out which one of us is going to wind up in charge. A lot of twists in that story, but everything they're doing is revolving around that. That's what they're concerned about. We're watching it from a bigger picture, though, because we've been reading since chapter 1, and we've been taught by chapter 3, chapter 12, chapter 17 to expect that all of the problems that have been brought into the world, everything from sin to death to sorrow to suffering and all the rest of it, uh, we've been taught to expect that one day someone will come who is a descendant of Eve, and then we learn a descendant of Abraham and now we learn a descendant of Jacob, the father in this story, someone will come who will be a mighty savior king and fix all of these problems, will bring back a world with no death, with no injustice, with no tears, a world where we are forgiven for our sins. 
And so we're looking at these 12 brothers and we're asking, huh, I wonder if one of these 12 brothers is that mighty Savior King. And if not, I wonder which one will be the ancestor of that great Savior King to come. So kind of two plot lines going here and it may be the same person. Who's going to wind up in charge of the family? And who is going to wind up either being the mighty Savior King or being the ancestor of the mighty Savior King? So far, it's looking like Joseph is in the lead. The first three brothers, Reuben, Levi, Simeon, they have all angered their father. Their father's probably not going to pick them. Next in line would be Judah. But young Joseph, the 11th born, has had these dreams that he will one day rule the family. All of them will bow down to him. And the other brothers hate him for that. Now we see one of the first great twists in the story that make us wonder, now wait a minute, which brother is it going to be? Let's read through most of Genesis 37. We'll start at verse 12. Normally we do a little call and response thing after the reading. We won't today just because of length. We'll probably start that back up in a week or two. We'll start at Genesis 37 and I'm going to start here at verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. And so he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will see, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him from out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Joseph came to his brothers, and they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him, and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and he said, the boy is gone and and I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in the blood. And then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. 
please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it, and he said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put a sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Through that story, the Spirit of God comforts Christians who wonder where the Lord was in the most tragic moments of their lives. Now, this story is very much zoomed in. Everything that happens here happens mostly in the space of a day, right? The fateful day when Joseph is thrown into the pit and sold into slavery. We get many details out of it. Now, to understand those details while we're zoomed in, we have to zoom out quite a bit. First, to the end of the story. There will come a day when Joseph, who now has been lowered and will be lowered still into prison, will be lifted up above everyone. Some of you are familiar with this story, others of you are not. Eventually, in Egypt, Joseph will be thrown from slavery into prison because he'll be lied about. But then the Pharaoh of the land will lift him up out of prison and make him in charge of everyone else in the land. Not only that, there will be a great famine, and Joseph's brothers, along with people from all over the world, will come to Joseph because he's the only one in the world who has grain for bread. So he will wind up, in a sense, with power over everyone in the world. He will go from being humbled to being exalted above many. He will meet his brothers again. They will ask him to forgive them, and he will say the fateful line that gives closure to this whole long story, what you meant for evil... God meant for good. So this evil happens to him, and Joseph is able to say what they meant for evil, God meant for good. There's one lens to interpret this story. Evil is happening to him, but God means it for good. Well, what good though? What what could the good be? Well, in that day, it was to save many in the famine. But the New Testament teaches us that there is much more to it even than that. Uh, Some of you are familiar with Romans chapter 8, a great chapter about the suffering that God's people go through. Uh, What that chapter tells us in verse 28 is something that sounds a lot like what Joseph said. Uh, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So God is taking everything in our lives and arranging it in such a way that it will end good for us. He's using even the worst moments of your life for good. So what others mean for evil in your life, God means for good for a believer in Jesus Christ. But again, we ask the same question. Okay, that's beautiful, but, but it's not concrete. Like, what is the good thing that God has for me? And the next verse goes on to tell us what that is. Uh, it says, For those that he foreknew, that is everyone who becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the good thing we are headed toward is becoming more and more like Jesus. Well, how's that work out? How am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I holier and holier every day and so I'm more like Jesus? Well, yes, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. 
He says back in verse 17 of Romans 8 that we are now suffering with him, and if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. So we roll all of that together, and we can say that even the worst moments in the life of a believer, God is using us, God is using to make us more like Jesus in both his suffering and in his glorification. God has one begotten Son who is beloved to him, who came to earth and humbled himself, was then humiliated even further, but was then lifted up above all as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to rule and reign all of the universe. And he is so delighted in this Son that he has called many other sons to him, both men and women called as his sons to him. And he is, through our lives, making us more like him in our suffering that is like his, And then one day in our glorification and exaltation that is like his. So we consider then the pattern of Jesus' life, lower and lower and lower until he's lifted up high. Then we look back at Joseph's life and we say, wait a minute. Here's another one, and this is true like all believers, right? God is is conforming all of us into the image of Christ. And here is a man who had his robe stripped off of him, just like Jesus did, and was sold for silver, just like Jesus was sold for silver, and then lied about in a courtroom, just like Jesus was lied about in a courtroom, and then later on was was lifted up above all and given the keys to the kingdom, who then people from all over the world come and bow down before him to receive the bread of life, you can see what he's doing in Joseph's life here. He's making Joseph like Jesus. He's making Joseph into a picture of the glory and wonder of Jesus' story. What Romans 8 tells us is that the Lord is doing that in your life too, if you're a believer. He is making your life a wonderful picture of Jesus' character and Jesus' story. And so that's why Paul is able to say, if we are suffering with him now, we will be glorified with him on the last day. That's why Paul's able to say all things that God is doing in our lives are working together for good for those who love the Lord, for those called according to his purpose. We are destined to be conformed into the image of Christ in his holiness, in his suffering, and in his exaltation. It's true of Joseph, and it's true of us as well. There's the pair of glasses that we put on when we read Joseph's story. We say, okay, how is this like Jesus' story? And how is God making me like Jesus in the same way? Now, with those glasses on, let's look at the story and let's see what we can find there. The story, I think, divides neatly into two parts. One part, the author's emphasizing some sort of happenstance things that happen that lead to this fateful day. And then the larger part, the last several paragraphs, the author's emphasizing just how evil these brothers are. So we'll look at that first part first. In the beginning of the story, we start in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 12. And Joseph's father, Jacob, whose name is also Israel, sends him to his brothers who hate him. So the brothers are about 80 miles away, several days journey away. He says, go see what the brothers are up to and bring back a report to me. Well, here's a way that Joseph is already like Jesus, sent by his father to his own who hate him and will not receive him. Well, Joseph goes. He gets there, and they're, they're not there. So he sends them to Shechem. They're not there at Shechem. 
Uh, they have gone instead to Dothan. They've wandered over to another place named Dothan. And this is one of those things that makes a reader wonder, okay, why is that in there, right? Like this is not an essential part of the story, but the re- they always put something like that in there on purpose. What's the difference between Shechem and Dothan? Really one big difference. Dothan is on a trade route. That's why they see the Ishmaelite traders coming over the hill on their way to Egypt because now they're on a trade route. So it just kind of happens that they were at Shechem, which is not on a trade route, and they just kind of happen to wander over to Dothan, which is on a trade route. And if they hadn't done that, they never would have seen the Ishmaelite traders. They never would have gotten the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. They probably would have just killed him in the pit. So feels happenstance, but the Lord was using it to bring about the end that he wanted. Then another happenstance thing happens. He's wandering the fields, and a stranger just finds him in the field. And this stranger just happens to know where the brothers are, and just happens to say, oh, I know where they are. They're over in Dothan, and this is what brings Joseph over to Dothan. If he had never run into this random person whose name we don't know and we'll never learn anything else about, he never would have made it over to Dothan, and all of this never would have happened. So here the author is going to, uh, to, to some effort to point out that a few seemingly random things just happen that lead Joseph to this fateful place on this fateful day. And that really brings us to our first point. If the overarching message here is that God is using everything in your story, if you're a believer in Jesus, to make you more like Jesus in both his suffering and his glory, our first point is that God is using the seemingly random details in your story to make you more like Jesus both in suffering and in exaltation. For a lot of us who have been through really terrible things, we can look back at the events that lead up to it and say, man, what if, what if I had been talking with my friend at that gathering facing this way instead of talking with my friend facing this way, I never would have seen her We never would have met, we never would have gotten married, and I wouldn't have had such a tragic first marriage, right? What if? What if instead of taking this job, I had taken that job, and then I never would have had that awful boss who was so terrible to me? What if this one little thing had just gone a little, what if I had gotten on this bus instead of that bus? What if I had walked down this alley instead of that alley? And then we look up to God and we say, God, God, why did it work that way? Why did it just so happen that I went down a road that led to so much pain and so much sorrow? Or if you're Joseph, why did I have to run into that stranger? Why did, why did it have to be Dothan of all places where the trade route was? And the Lord is pointing out here between these details and Joseph's words later, which he meant for evil, God meant for good. He says, I am sovereign over every detail in your life. And in fact, I have put every detail there in your life as part of my good plan for you. Now that can be kind of profound and even even tough to accept. But I think there is something in all of our hearts, there's an intuition in us that knows that that must be so, that the details in life must matter, that there must be meaning in everything that happens. 
this is why something like astrology is so alluring to people and has such a draw to people. It's difficult really to believe that aspects of your personality were seared into you based on the positions of the stars in the sky when you were born. That's, that's tough to believe, and people who believe that choose to put a lot of faith in that. Why is it alluring enough that people would believe something like that? Well, because it appeals to that inner sense we all have that there must be meaning in all of those details. There must be a reason that Jupiter goes along the path that it goes along. There must be a reason, there must be meaning in the fact that I bumped into one person and I wound up at this church and not that church and all these details, I was born to these parents and not those parents. It can't all be random, they must all be connected, there must be some meaning in all of it. And the Lord says from heaven, there is meaning in all of it. I have arranged every last bit of it for the good of my people. So the meaning we're looking for in all of the details, the Lord gives it. The Lord gives it through the gospel of Jesus to say, come to me and see the destiny that I have prepared for my people. This is also why conspiracy theories have such an allure to them. If you've ever had a family member who's deep in a conspiracy theory, you probably thought to yourself, how can you believe that? Right? Some of them are just wild and fanciful. What's the draw? Why does that pull people in? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is that we just know in our heart that all these details must be connected. And so you get this detail, and you get that detail, and you get this detail, and you get that detail, and then all of a sudden it's, boom, I knew it. The CIA has a plan to take over whatever, right? You get, you, we just want to put them all together because we believe in our hearts that every detail has meaning. And again, the Lord says, yes, every detail does have meaning. Even the stranger that came and bumped into Joseph and sent him over to Dothan so that God's plan would go just the way he wanted it to go. Every detail has meaning, and the Lord is using even the most random details in your life to make you more like Jesus if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the second emphasis. Much longer, the author spends more time because I think he cares a lot more about this. For the rest of the story, the author is going to be emphasizing just how evil these brothers are. First in verse 18, they see him coming and they conspire to kill him before he is close enough that he can hear what they're doing. So they get together their motive, which is, all oh, those dreams, we don't like those dreams that he had. They get together their plan, which is to kill him and then throw him in a pit. They know what to do with the body, which is throw him in the pit. They get the alibi together, which is, the, we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And if you're really paying attention here, you start to think, wait, that is not a lot of time to plot an entire true crime podcast series level murder. Like, this is like eight episodes of a podcast they would take to unload that, but these guys do it in like 45 seconds. Like, they're just sitting there on the rocks saying, oh, here he comes. You know what? I hate him. Let's kill him. Yeah. Yeah, let's throw him in a pit. Yeah, that's what we'll do with the body. Yeah, let's say that a fierce animal has devoured him and just boom, 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 boom. They got the whole thing figured out. They must have really hated their brother. And this, I think, is a picture of what the Lord says just before the flood, that the thoughts of mankind were so evil that it was only violence and evil in their hearts continually. How else do you see your brother come over a hill and have his whole murder figured out before he's close enough to hear what you're doing? 
These brothers, supposed to be the people of God, they are wicked men. However, one of them does not agree with the plan, and this is Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn, and he did something really despicable and greatly offended his father. And so he knows he is probably not going to inherit the estate from his father. And he almost looks heroic when he says, no, 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 brothers, don't, don't do this. Just throw him in a pit. And his plan is to go rescue Joseph out of the pit, right? Don't kill him. Just let him die there. And he's going to go rescue Joseph. But it tells us what his motive is. He wanted to restore Joseph to his father. Now, if you know that and you know the detail in the story that he had offended his dad and probably lost the inheritance earlier, you can figure out what his motive is. He's trying to get back in his dad's good graces so that he can be the heir and inherit the estate again. We'll see more about his motives later, but he looks like a hero now. We will find out that he is not. Then later on in verse 23, they strip the robe, the robe of many colors that they had from him. And then in verse 24, they throw him into a pit. Usually these pits had water in it, so he would drown. This one doesn't have water in it, so he survives. And then I think one of the most chilling details comes in verse 25. After they have thrown their brother in a pit, he's there starving and thirsting to death. They've left him to die. What do they do? They sit down and have dinner with their brother right over there, perishing in a pit. So we're starting to get the feel. These are, these are really despicable men. This is a very wicked thing that they have done. Next, they see traitors coming over the hill. And Judah, who is kind of now the leader, he's the fourth born. The first three have disqualified themselves from being a leader. So he's kind of the leader now. He's like, hey, brothers, I got an idea. I mean, we're not even going to make any money off of this plan that we have. What if instead we sell our brother into slavery and then at least we'll make a little bit of money off of him? Won't that be nice? Uh, Now we're starting to see how wicked this guy is. The best thing you can think of is to make money by selling the brother into slavery. They sell him for silver, which is another of those poetic details that points forward to Jesus. One day Jesus will be betrayed and he will be sold for silver as well by someone who was a close one to him, by someone who was his brother who should have known better and should not have done it. Joseph all the while is silent. Isn't it strange that we don't hear Joseph's cries from the pit? We don't hear him pounding on the wall, screaming at his brothers as they are sitting down near him and feasting. He's just silent the whole time. In fact, the only two things he ever says in the story are to his father, basically, yes, sir, literally, here I am, he says to his father. And then he says to the stranger, I'm seeking my brothers. And other than that, he's just a submissive to his father, obeys what his father wants him to do all the way to his own death. Isaiah would say, like, like a lamb to the slaughter, right? Silent, and he opened not his mouth. Uh, just little whispers that point us to this mighty Savior King that's going to come. This is what his story will be like. He will be sold for sale. He will be sent to brothers who hate him. He will be silent like a lamb to the slaughter, following his father's will all the way to the end. Next, Reuben comes back. He's there to try to rescue Joseph, but they have already sold him, and so he's gone. And he doesn't know why. He doesn't know what happens. And so he says what reveal his true motives. 
the boy is gone, and not, oh, what happened to him? Not, oh, I hope he is okay, but the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? What am I going to do? Dad left me in charge of Joseph, and I lost him. So his motive the whole time is to try to look good for his dad. He never wanted to rescue Joseph because he loved him. He wanted to rescue Joseph to restore him to his father so he could look good before his father again. And that's why when the boy's gone, he says, what am I going to do? Where shall I go? Now dad is really going to hate me. So now we see more deeply Reuben's motives. Right? He, was, he was not the hero. No, he's self-serving and only trying to get what he wants. Even the closest thing to a hero in the story is self-serving. That's why he goes along with the brother's plan. They go back and they say, okay, let's take his robe. Let's dip it in a goat's blood. Let's give it to our dad and let's let him figure out what has happened. Jacob looks at it. He says, yeah, that's my son's robe. He's been killed by an animal. He's gone. And he weeps and mourns. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and People did this in that day. That's how they mourned. And they would usually mourn like that for a week or maybe for a month. Uh, But when the time comes for the end of it, his sons and all of his daughters come and they comfort him and he won't be comforted. And he says, no, I'm going to mourn for the rest of my life. I'm going to wear these torn clothes the rest of my life. I'm going to wear sackcloth for the rest of my life mourning my son who I love and I won't be comforted until I die and I see him again in the afterlife and here is what I think is the most searing detail the brothers see that they know Joseph is alive and they don't tell their father these are wicked men would rather see their dad mourn for the rest of his life than just say, oh, dad, he's alive, and we could go buy him out of slavery. So the author's doing a lot here to point out just how wicked what these men did to Joseph was. They plotted his murder in a matter of seconds or minutes when they saw him coming over the hill. Even Reuben, the hero, is one who does not have good motives. They sit down to eat while their brother is perishing in a pit. They sell him into slavery. And then in the end, they don't even tell their father what really happened when their father spends the rest of his life grieving. All of this is so that when Joseph says later, you meant it for evil, we can say, yes, they did. Yeah, they were very evil. Now, for those of you who have been through terrible things because other people have been evil toward you, this gives us a point. It gives us some teaching. It shows us that God is using even the most heinous things done to you to make you more like Jesus. And as Romans eight seventeen says, if you suffer with him today, you will be lifted up with him tomorrow. That is true, Joseph's story says, even of the most terrible moments in your life, even of the most wicked things that were done to you. When we read through that, I wonder if some of your hearts were saying, they did what? They sat down to eat while he was dying? They sold him into, they did what? 
And I know for some of you, if we went around the room and gave everybody the microphone and you could tell the story of what's happened to you, we would say the same thing, right? They did what to you? They, they locked you in a closet on Thanksgiving Day and had Thanksgiving dinner without you? They did what to you? Your husband did what to you? And when it has gotten so bad that we would say that, like we would say it about this story, the Lord whispers through these words, for believers in Jesus, even the most heinous thing done to you, the Lord will use to one day lift you high. Because if you suffer with him and endure with him and cling to him, you will one day reign with him. Now that changes the game for somebody who has been through really terrible abuse like Joseph has. Uh, Because one of the things that happens, uh, part of the effect of that trauma, and then also if you've just been around someone who is very, very manipulative and they've influenced you for a while, I mean, some of you know, it leaves you feeling like about this big, right? And so it is so impossible to imagine, wait a minute, I've suffered like Joseph has, one day I'm going to be glorified and reign like Joseph is? Like the last thing you could ever imagine is yourself standing with a scepter, ruling over nations beside Jesus Christ and his church. That's just the very, that just shatters the whole paradigm for us. But hear the words of Romans 8, if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. And so for some of you, what you need to do, if you're a believer in Jesus and you have been through something like what Joseph has been through, what you need to do is imagine yourself At the end of all things, Jesus has returned. He has risen you from the dead. And there you are standing over some pocket of his kingdom that he has given to you. And he has said, these are the borders. And this land, this is yours. You're standing over it with a gold iron scepter in your hand. Some heavenly creature that if you saw it right now, you would think it was God and you would bow down and worship it. And it would say, no, 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 don't worship me. I'm not God. It comes forward to you and it bows before you and says, ma'am, sir, how can I serve you? And then you tell it what to do. And it says, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. And it goes and does what you say. And you stand and look over what God has given you to rule and reign, and it is flourishing and teeming with life under your care because he has made you new and given you so much wisdom that you know how to rule and how to reign now. Some of you, I wonder if that is the farthest thing you can imagine from your destiny. But the word of God says that at the return of Jesus Christ, that is what he has prepared for all of his believers. And what I just gave you is a tiny taste of it. The truth is no mind can understand, no eye has seen what God has prepared for those who love him. As Joseph was lowered down, we are lowered down. And as Joseph was then lifted up, we will one day be lifted up. As Jesus was lowered down, his followers are lowered down. And as Jesus was lifted up at his return, we will be lifted up. And that means whatever we're going through right now is just act one. And the bad guy always wins act one, doesn't he? But friends, hold out hope and wait for act two when the Lord returns and we rule and we reign with him. That is how Joseph was able to endure everything that he went through. Now we've got to put a lot of details to see this, but the narrative gives us enough to know. In the last story... Joseph had two dreams, and they both had the same meaning. The meaning of that dream was that he was going to rule over his father and over his brothers one day. 
Later, the Pharaoh will have two dreams, and he won't be able to tell what they mean, and he'll bring Joseph to him. And Joseph tells him, well, the meaning of the two dreams are, are one. And when a dream is doubled like that, that means it's fixed by God. So this thing is definitely going to happen. Now, Joseph doesn't ask God and God tells him that. Joseph already knows that. So we put this together and we know that Joseph is aware that a doubled dream, at least in Genesis, is fixed by God and definitely going to happen. He has already had the two dreams that tell him that one day he will rule over his brothers. And so he knows how this is going to end. He knows it is fixed by God that one day he'll be in charge of this family one way or another. One day they're going to come and they're going to bow down to him. And this is how he can be at the bottom of a pit and not lose hope and despair. This is how he can be sold into slavery and not lose hope and not despair because he knows, okay, this is wild and crazy right now, but the Lord has told me I will rule over my brothers. So knowing his destiny, knowing that it is fixed, this is what gives him hope to endure the suffering and the abuse he's going through. Some of you then can look back on terrible memories and say, how can I go on when I can't undo that? The answer is the same way Joseph did, knowing your destiny, knowing your future. This is a future that God has prepared for everyone who has been called according to his purpose, everyone who loves the Lord, everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's just one of many benefits that Jesus offers his people, a sure and certain knowledge that if we suffer with Jesus and cling to Jesus, we will be lifted high and glorified with Jesus. And so the call I want to leave you with, if you have never considered coming to this Jesus and receiving him, or if you have considered but never received him before, I want to call you to him now. Uh, I want you to know that he was God and he was made man. He was lowered like that voluntarily. Uh, he was mistreated before many, lied about, put in a mock trial, and then handed over to the Romans to be crucified, where he died a terrible and excruciating death. Smicken, and, and he, everyone was offended by him and ashamed of him. And he bore all this willingly in order to pay for the sins of his people. And that's why a whole bunch of people can gather here and say, we're forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, we want to invite you to be one of those people as well, to, to look to Jesus and say, I receive that, I receive him, I want to be forgiven in his name. And then he was risen from the dead to guarantee eternal life for all those who trust him. And we want to invite you to come and receive that too, eternal life in his name. He was then has ascended up into heaven where he sits now at his father's hand, ruling the nations for the good of his people, soon to return to give that eternal life to his people, to raise us from the dead and will rule and reign forever with him. This and so much more, he just offers freely in his hand. And he says, anyone who wants it, come and take all of it. So if you're drawn to him, if he's pulling you to him this morning, I urge you, come to him, receive him, trust him. Uh, let's pray, and I'm going to pray for, for all of you.